Father, we bless you. We pray that you would um, guide our discussion. Um, we pray that you would be present here as we talk about uh, your son, as we talk about his incarnation, as we talk about um, what that means for us. Um, we pray that you would help us as we learn to grow more and more in love with you and who you are and who you revealed yourself to be in your son. We pray these things in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. So, like I said last week, we're jumping into the heart of the creed now. Um, so this is where lots of people have questions. Um, so we'll talk through what it means when we say that Jesus is eternally begotten. Um, we'll talk about where Jesus was before the incarnation. Um, what does it mean that Jesus is both God and man, and why does it matter um, that he's both God and man? Why does it matter that he's divine and human? Um, so let's start off by together saying this section of the creed. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven, was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made man. So jumping into the actual text of the creed, we're talking about the only begotten Son of God. Um, so we talked about this a little bit last week, but what does that word begotten mean? Birthed, yeah. Birthed or just procreated, yeah. Um, so and you'll actually, so the, the exact phrase that uh, is used uh, with regard to Jesus four times by John is only begotten Son, uh, monogenes quios in Greek. It's used of other people. Um, so like if you see that, um, like I think it's uh, I think it's the uh, when Jesus raises there's like a funeral processional and there and there's somebody who's dead and Jesus raises um, that person it says that he was uh, his mother's only son it uses the exact same phrase monogenes uh, quios so it's not like it's a special phrase um, whenever you see, and in, in fact in the Old Testament when you'll see um, only son or only born son or whatever it's the exact same phrase in the Greek version of the Old Testament. So it's not like it's special, um, right? But what does John mean when he's saying only begotten? That's the question. And what do we mean when we say that Jesus is the Son of God, right? So sometimes people will bring up um, when we talk about Jesus being the Son of God and saying that, that refers to his divinity, people will say, well, Adam's called the Son of God. The angels are called sons of God. Uh, Paul says when he's uh, speaking to the Athenians, he says that we're all God's offspring. So in what way could that possibly refer to his divinity, right? Um, all that's true, right? If you go read Job, right, when, when Satan, when the accuser goes, um, it says that he goes with the sons of God. Um, if you read the genealogy um, in Luke, going from uh, Adam all the way up to Joseph, it's this person begat this person, this person begat this person, and then eventually down to when Adam was the son of God. Um, so that's not wrong. The question is, when the New Testament writers, particularly John, use the phrase son of God, do they mean the same thing? Or is Jesus different in some way? Is he a different kind of son of God? Um, and so while these other beings can be said to be sons of God, all of these beings had beginnings, right? Um, so the angels had a beginning. Um, when Paul says that we're all God's offspring, we all had a beginning, right? But the New Testament writers talk about Jesus as not having a beginning. So this is a way that distinguishes him from the rest of them so that we might say that um, those who are called sons of God are sons of God by, by God's grace, that they became sons of God, but that Jesus is God's natural son, uh, that he's unique in that way. 
Um, so all these other, other sons of God have beginnings, but Jesus is the natural born son um, and that he shares in his father's nature. So that just as the father is eternal, has no beginning, has no end, so also his son has no beginning, has no end. Um, does that make sense? Okay, it sounds contrary that he's begotten. Why? Sure. Yeah. That he's begotten. Yes. So some some have said um, that yeah that be that there were that Jesus was not his son, not the son of the Father, but that he becomes the son at his incarnation. Um, this that was a, a really old view um, that the church rejected because of how the scriptures talk about Jesus being his son, um, right? That he, that he wasn't, didn't one day become his son, um, right? So this is why the creed talks about Jesus in our common vernacular, we say eternally begotten. Um, literally in Greek, it's begotten before the ages or begotten before time. Um, so we'll talk about how that's distinguished and different. Um, but yeah, when we use, when we, even if we were to say born, right? He's, the, he's God's only born son or whatever. Well, he wasn't literally born, right? God doesn't have a womb. Um, right, so even when we use those phrases, we're, we're already moving into, uh, not hyperbole, but, but metaphor at least, um, when, we're, when we're talking about those things. Does that make sense? Yes, he is. So, for example, um, in John 1.18, um, John writes, no one has ever seen God, meaning the Father. And then he says, um, the only begotten Son, um, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has revealed him to us. Um, there's different variations in the, in the uh, textual variants that come out of Egypt. It says only begotten God. But either way, you're using monogenes. Um, it's using the same terminology. Um, whether he's the only begotten God or only begotten Son, I don't have a preference either way. Um, but it's pointing to the same idea that that he's not—he didn't one day become a son, right? Um, and, and even in Hebrews, Hebrews talks about how Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So that it, in terms of his divine nature, in terms of who he is before his incarnation, he's unchanging. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So we'll talk. We'll talk about what does it mean that he's eternally begotten. So we'll talk about like. So one of the questions we'll, we'll ask is, when was Jesus begotten? What does that mean? Um, so, um, but let's let's look at some some scriptures. So, the scriptures talk about this promised son that's going to come, right? So King David was promised that he would have a child that would reign from his throne forever, um, and that in fact this child would reign over all the earth. Um, and so you'll see different passages that are talking about this promised son. Um, 
sons of David and kings of Israel were in fact called sons of God. Um, so if you read Second uh, Samuel 7, when uh, Solomon, David's son, is inaugurated, he says, uh, God says, he will be to me a son and I will be to him a father. Um, so this idea that when they enter into this position, remember when, when the Israelites demanded a king um, and Samuel is upset, right? God reminds him, well, they're not rejecting you, my prophet, they're rejecting me. <laughs> they're rejecting me as ruling over them, right? And so what God's doing is he's setting up these kings to rule over the nation in his stead. Um, and so in this way, they are regarded as sons of God, if that makes sense. Um, so, but the, there's this promise, right, that David will have a descendant that will rule from his throne forever. Um, and so there's this promise, okay, well, who's going to be this son, right? So, for example, in Isaiah 7, um, we read, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The immediate context for this uh, passage is when Israel is surrounded by an army and the king is concerned. And so uh, the prophet Isaiah goes to the king and says, well, ask for the Lord a sign. He says, well, I don't want to test God. And he says, well, don't. <laughs> God told you to do it, so you can do it. Um, but he says, this will be the sign. Um, the young woman is literally what it means in Hebrew. It can mean virgin, doesn't have to. Um, will conceive a son and you will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The immediate message there that God is communicating to this king who's worried about this invading army who wants to reach out to other nations for help instead of reaching out to God, God's saying, don't worry, you're going to have a son. Call this son Emmanuel because I'm still with you. You're going to have a son. He will reign on your throne. This isn't your end, right? Keep trusting in me. We'll see later that Matthew interprets this verse differently, but that's the immediate context of what that verse means, right? This, this continued, that, that this line of David will continue. Um, in Micah 5.2, Micah writes, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, really hard to say, uh, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Okay, so there's going to be this, so why Bethlehem? Bethlehem is where David's from, right? Um, out of you will come this ruler, right? And then, again, this, this hint, this clue of, well, this ruler is more than just a son of David, right? That his, that his origins are from, from God himself from ancient days. Well, who, who could this be? Um, psalm 2, which is a coronation psalm, um, uh, reads, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Remember, these sons that are inaugurated, they become sons of God. Um, to rule in his stead. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So these passages point to this coming son. And all of these passages are quoted in the New Testament as referring to Jesus. They all point to these and say, hey, this, this is the son that we've been looking for. Um, sometimes you'll see in the Gospels uh, that people will cry out, son of David, to Jesus. They're crying out to him because they're saying, hey, we think you're this king, right? When they call him Messiah, Messiah is just from the Hebrew word uh, Mashiach or from the Greek word Christos, both just mean anointed. Prophets, priests, and kings were anointed for their ministry. So when they're calling him Messiah, they're saying, we think you're anointed to be the next king. Just like Samuel anointed David with oil to be the next king, so also we think, we think you're this anointed one. Um, right, uh, and so, so all these passages, the New Testament writers look back at these and say, hey, these are actually find their fulfillment in Jesus. Um, he is the son of David. And, and more than this, He's not just another king, right? He's not just a regular son of David. Actually, there's, there's more to him than this, um, that he is actually God's only begotten son, that he's God's son by nature, unlike these other kings, right? Um, so this brings us to John 1.1, 1, 1. Um, right? So when we ask this question, when was Jesus begotten? When was Jesus a son of God? We want to look to this text, right? This is the question that Arius was trying to answer. 
right? So as he was working out, okay, well, what's the relationship between the father and the son? Arius's solution to make sure that the father and the son's distinction was maintained was to say that the father created the son. Boom, easy, father and son are easily differentiated that way, right? The problem is, scriptures don't teach that, right? Um, and so uh, the, the scriptures don't teach that, that Jesus had a beginning, right? So my son, James, had a definite beginning. There was a time when he did not exist. God's son shares in his nature. So just like I'm finite and I have a beginning, James shares in my nature. He had a beginning, he'll die because I'll die. God's son's distinct, right? God's son shares in his nature. So just as the father is eternal, has no beginning, has no end, so also his son has no beginning, has no end. Um, right, so we read in, in John 1, 1 through 3, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So we talk about in the beginning, um, and this is getting to the question, okay, well, when, right? So the beginning refers to the moment when change occurs. So when we think about, so some, sometimes when we think about eternity, sometimes it's described as something that God's in and we're out of or something. Like there's this other realm where time doesn't really happen but events still happen, and people use phrases like eternity past, which doesn't make any sense at all, because if there's no time, you can't have eternity past. It's really weird and messy, right? Um, so we talked about last week that one of, the, one of the key characteristics of God, who is the origin of all things, including time, is that he's immutable. Um, now, Pastor Ken talked about how um, Augustine made the error of saying that by meaning that God's immutable, that he doesn't have emotion or anything else like that. That's not how I'm using the phrase. Um, and so what, I, what, we're, what we're meaning when we say this is that God doesn't change, right? So James 1.17, in him there is no, no uh, shadow of turning, no change, right? That God doesn't change in terms of his nature. Um, and so w when you only have God, right, if nothing else is in existence, there's no change. And there's no way to measure time then, right? When God begins to create things, right, so when he br brings time, matter, and space into being, now you can mark change. Now you can mark time, right? So we mark a year by the revolution of the earth around the sun, right? We're marking those change, right? Um, in, the, in Genesis, God sets the stars and, and, and all these other celestial bodies to be markers for signs and seasons so that we can measure time, so we can measure change, right? My son used to be this big, now he's this big, right? I can see time that way. There is no time if there's no change. Does that make sense? So when we talk about in the beginning, we're talking about when change happens, when time itself begins. And whenever that beginning was, however far back you want to put it, if you want to put it 6,000 years ago, if you want to put it 10.5 million years ago, whatever the, whatever the time you want to put, wherever the time begins, the word is already there. In the beginning was the word. He was already there. The word is also distinct from the Father. The word is with God, right? Twice, John writes, the word is with God, right? In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, the same was with God in the beginning. He wants to make it very clear. I'm not saying that Jesus is the father, right? So he makes the father and the son very clearly distinct. Despite this distinction, John does indicate that the word shares the father's nature. The word was God. And lest we think that this distinction indicates that he's a creature, John makes this abundantly clear, right? Well, what do you mean when you say he's God? Through him all things were made, and without him was not anything made that was made. Anything that's in the category of creature was made by the sun. The sun can't be a creature, 
because all things that came into being came into being through him. Um, th there's this chasm, right, between created things and uncreated, right? Again, God's not a thing, right? He's not in the same category that we are. He's distinct and completely different from us. So John's saying that the son shares in the father's nature. He is equal to God, so much so that God created through his word all things. Um, so anything that's in that category of thing, anything that's in that category of creation is separate and distinct from God and his word. Does that make sense? Kind of? <laughs> yeah, but ho hopefully, hopefully, especially talking about time that way, I th hopefully that's helpful to kind of work, because again, sometimes the, 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 the language gets really, really messy with that. So if we can think, through, think about time as being, okay, where I can measure change, where I can see those things happening, that before any of those things come into ex existence, the word is already there, right? And God points to this, like we talked about last time, saying that um, he is Yahweh, he's, that he's the self-existent one, right? Tell the Israelites that I am the one who exists sent uh, you to them. Um, so God's, God alone is self-existent, is not reliant on anyone else, right? Um, the unmoved mover is one way that put it, uh, to put it, um, which is how Augustine put it, um, or Aquinas would talk about he's the uncaused cause, he's the origin of everything. Sure, yeah, lots of, lots of different ways to put it. No, because we know that time had a beginning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's messy, right? Right, yeah, but that's, and that's why I think our understanding of time as a measurement of change is really, is really, really important, right? If I can't measure it, how could I possibly know that it exists, right? So, and that God, and that God is, because he's self-existent, he's not limited and, and bound in the same ways that we are, right? It's really hard for us to work that out. Um, we're very, very limited in our, in our dimensions and all that, so there's, there's, there's mystery there, right? Yeah, yeah, well, and we'll, but we'll still be finite, that's the thing, right? So we won't, we won't ever actually really, there's, there's not, that's the thing, there's not really such a thing as, as entering into eternity, uh, right, because we're, we're bound by time, we, we change, uh, right, we have a beginning. Um, we won't have an end, but we will have, always have a beginning. Um, now, sometimes people make a fuss and they say, well, you just go to the Gospel of John to prove that Jesus is divine by nature, but the other Gospel writers didn't seem to know anything about this, and that is absolutely not true. So, let's look at some other examples. Um, so, in Mark chapter 2, we have the story of the healing of the paralytic. Um, so, we read, and Jesus saw, uh, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. There's debate about which gospel is earliest. Most modern scholars say that it's Mark. I don't really care. The story is in all three gospels. Um, so pick your earlier one um, if you want to say it right. Very clearly you have Mark indicating and, and Matthew and Luke as well. The Pharisees are having these thoughts and the scribes are having these thoughts in their minds. Jesus knows them and calls them out on it. Um, and what is this issue over? Whether or not he can forgive sins. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus demonstrates that he actually has the authority to do that. He's making himself equal to the Father. Um, we see this in Luke as well. 
so in Isaiah 42, um, Isaiah writes, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And yet Jesus says in Luke 9, for who, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So in Isaiah, God says, I don't share my glory with anyone. And then Jesus says, well, I share in the glory of the Father. Well, how can he do that unless he shares in his nature? Again, this is, this is, this is not something that uh, is unique to John. Um, I would argue that John is making that point more than the other gospel writers. He wants to make this very clear. Um, John is responding to some early heresies where people are saying that, well, Jesus just appeared to be human or he was human and he wasn't divine. He's responding to these things where the earlier gospel writers aren't dealing with those issues as much. Um, so, but he, may, he certainly makes it clear, but it's not like it's, it's not in the other gospels. It's very, it's abundantly clear that, that um, Jesus is making these kinds of claims. Um, any, any questions about that? We also see in the book of Hebrews, the author opens up saying, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the ages. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. All right, so God's spoken to us in all these diverse kinds of, kinds of ways through prophets. But now he's speaking to us through a son. And it's through this son, literally in, in, in Greek it says aeons, ages, um, that, that time itself began. Um, in Colossians, Paul says that he calls Jesus the beginning. He is the beginning. He's the origin of all things. That Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, that he shares in his nature. That he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The reason why the universe still exists is because Jesus says so. <laughs> you don't say these things about a creature. I don't care how exalted this creature is. You can't say these things about a creature. A creature made time. It does, it, it, again, scripture makes it abundantly clear. Only one God. What's, what's, and, and, and repeatedly, in the main distinction, what, what makes this, this God, if you're going to talk about these other gods that are, that are out there that exist, right? What's the distinction? That, that the God that the Israelites worship and that Christians worship is the God who made everything. When you look at all, all, a lot of these other gods, often they come out of creation itself, right? The God that we worship made everything. Everything came into existence through him. These are the kinds of lofty things that are said, um, not just about the father, but about the son. And yeah. To, to, so who, who would be wanting to challenge the idea that, that Jesus is divine? Uh, 
so yeah, no, no. So, so here, it's actually important that we that we hear this. So sometimes this is this is not talked about a lot. Um, but you have the events of the Gospels, right? Jesus is is now relatively undisputed that Jesus existed. That used to be disputed for a bit of time. Um, but we have obviously the New Testament sources, and then also outside of the New Testament, we have sources indicating that Jesus was a real person. And there's reports that he came back from the dead, right? Now the Gospels make that abundantly clear, right? That okay, if you're if you're not going to believe the Gospels, then okay, there's there's at least reports that he came back from the dead. Okay, so you have this major event. There are going to be tons of ways to interpret it, right? Well, what does this mean, and who was this person, right? And so in in early Christianity, both in the New Testament and even outside of it, you see references to these different groups that are understanding these events differently. Um, so you have, we see this within within the New Testament itself, by the way, right? So you have the uh, Abraham is, receives this promise, right? And then Ishmael and Isaac understand it completely differently, right? Which is where you get Islam eventually and Judaism, right? Different understandings of the same events. Um, so, but we see this in the New Testament and elsewhere as well, right? So who, who is this Jesus? So some groups say that Jesus was really a 100-foot angel. Some groups say that Jesus was just a good, a good guy. He was a good prophet. Some say that he was a Messiah, that he worked miracles, but he wasn't divine by nature. Some say that he really was divine by nature and he only appeared to be human. He wasn't really human. All ca Literally, there's some groups, some Gnostic groups that say that Jesus didn't even have footsteps because he wasn't really there. All kinds of different understandings. And so the question is, and, and becomes throughout church history, which understanding do you believe, right? Which, which take do you believe? And this is why when Jesus sends out his apostles, right, they're the ones that have the authoritative message. And that's why when you're seeing, you'll, you'll see all kinds of false gospels, right? So sometimes you, you'll hear people bring up the gospel of Thomas um, or the infancy gospel of Thomas, which is my personal favorite. Um, you have Jesus making clay doves and he claps his hands and they become real. Um, a boy falls off, off a roof and uh, people say, well, Jesus pushed him off. And Jesus says, no, I didn't. And he raises him from the dead and goes, did I push you off? And he says, no. And everybody's happy. These really weird, crazy stories, right? To try and fill in these gaps, right? Um, but all these different, and, and what do they do? They tried to say that they were written by an apostle, right? Well, this was by Thomas, or this was by Peter. The problem is we know they're forgeries because they don't exist until the second century at the earliest, whereas the Gospels we have from the very beginning, right? But the big question is, okay, so by whose authority, even if you do accept the New Testament canon, even if you do accept the, the 27 books of the New Testament, how do you know that you're reading them rightly? Whose authority do you go by, right? The apostles are the ones, and then their successors, the bishops, are the ones that we would look to to say, okay, this is the tradition that's been passed on in terms of how we understand these events. Um, so for the author of Hebrews in particular, he's, yeah, Pharisees, anybody who was around that's going to be disputing, well, okay, they say he was born of a virgin, but I, I heard this happened or whatever, right? He's going to be responding, and he's responding particularly to people who were walking away from the new covenant and going back to Judaism. So his entire argument is Jesus is superior initially than the angels. He's superior even than Moses. He's given us a better covenant. Um, and so that's why you want to stick with Christianity. Yeah, yeah. The idea, the idea that 
and again, you see this hinted in the Old Testament. It's not, it's not, it's not made clear and manifest until you get the new, to the New Testament, right? Um, but that, that God will somehow walk among his people, right? The Lord whom you seek will appear in his temple, um, as Malachi says, um, right? This, this idea that God himself is actually going to be shepherding his people, um, like the prophet Ezekiel talks about, that he will be, that he's, he's handed his flock over to these shepherds, and they've done a bad job, and so God himself will shepherd his people, which we'll actually talk about um, this Sunday for Good Shepherd Sunday. Um, right, and who is the good shepherd? Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, right? Anybody who knew Ezekiel would go, mm, you're sounding like you're trying to say something that, that only God can say, right? Jesus made these claims all the time, right? Which is why in John 10, they pick up stones to stone him, why? Because you, though you are a man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus is making these claims, the Christian, Christians are making these claims, one of the early, um, uh, they would try to sneak into Christian meetings to find out what they were doing, one of the early reports is that they would sing a hymn to Christ as God. Very early on, it's very clear that Orthodox Christians who are in hiding, they, they are making, it, making different kinds of claims about who this Jesus is, that he's not just a man. Um, so there's more to it than that. Is it true that this Jesus is directly the son of blessed is he, it says? Yep. Because if you hear Ezekiel say that he has no room with God, right. he's claiming I am God. Right. So that would be saying I'm like God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and John, John has his, his several I am statements John 8, 58 being one of them, right, before Abraham was, I am, and then they pick up stones to kill him, um, right? Uh, when Jesus, one of my favorites, when Jesus is about to be arrested in Gethsemane, they go and they approach him, and, and he asks them, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth, and he says, I am, and they fall to the ground. John makes no comment, but he says, I go me, he says, I am, and they fall to the ground. That's a weird response if you're just saying, here I am, <laughs> right? Which is sometimes what that, if I'm just saying, I am, right, that's the, you can you could use that phrase to mean oh it's me it's me right but they fall that's weird <laughs> right John doesn't make a comment right but if you're if you've been paying attention to all these other I am statements that he's been making you go oh I know I know what we're doing here I know what's happening yeah he's saying I'm the one I'm the one who's self-existent yeah yeah Yeah, yeah, no, in particular, so in particular in the, pa- in the passage we're going to look at right now, so he- Hebrews 1, I think, is really, really helpful, particularly for talking to Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is Michael the Archangel. And the entire first chapter of Hebrews is talking about how Jesus is better than the angels, <laughs> literally verbatim, um, and, and, and articulating why, right? So, so one of the passages that, that I like to look at if I have a Jehovah's Witness come to my house, A, I spend a lot of time with them, I invite them in, I sit down with them. Um, right, the way to make disciples is to build relationship. Um, so I sit down with them, I talk with them, we have plenty of areas where we agree, and then we start talking about Jesus and we have areas where we disagree, okay? Um, so I'll, I'll take them to a passage like this, Psalm 102. The Lord has broken my strength in mid-course, he has shortened my days, oh my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days. You whose years endure throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. Note very quickly, by the way, he's going to change them. They'll pass away, right? But he's going to change them like a robe. Creation is restored. Creation doesn't blow up. God's going to renew and restore creation. So real quick aside. So very clear we're talking about, um, if you're speaking to a Jehovah's Witness, they use Jehovah. We're clearly talking about Jehovah. We're clearly talking about Yahweh. There's no, no question, right? Then we get to Hebrews. 
But of the sun, he says, in the beginning, Lord, you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a cloak, you will roll them up, and like clothing, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will never end. So the author of Hebrews quotes a passage that is explicitly talking about Yahweh. He's the creator of all things. He stretched out the heavens. He formed the foundation of the earth, right? My years will pass away, right? The psalmist is saying, God, save me, right? I'm gonna, uh, if, if you don't help me, I will perish, right? You're eternal. I'm not. I need your help, right? The author of Hebrews quotes from this passage and says that God says this of his son. Unequivocal evidence. I don't know how else to read this. This is not how you talk about creatures. This is not how you talk about an angel. This is not how you talk about just some son of David, right? David or his son, his son can't stretch out the heavens, right? He came into existence, right? This son of David, the son of God, had to exist before, right? So this is how the New Testament writers talk about this. Um, yes, but of the son, he says, there's two quotes there. Um, so that's why the ellipse uses there. Um, so the other quote is, but your throne, O God, is forever and ever, which is also relatively clear. But, um, but that's the passage that um, is quoted from. Um, so, but, and what the author of Hebrews is doing there is he's, he's quoting all these passages and saying, of the angels, he says, he makes the ministers of the fire, of fire, but of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. He's comparing the angels um, to Jesus and saying that Jesus is highly exalted. He is, he is not an angel. In fact, he made the angels, right? He made all things. Um, and then he shifts over to, he's better than Moses. And then he shifts over to, he's better than all the priests that are ministering the old covenant. In fact, he, he establishes a new covenant um, and is the high priest over that. Um, so the whole thing is pointing out that, hey, we have a better thing. Don't walk away from this better thing. Don't go back. Um, God's actually fulfilling the old covenant in the new. Um, does that make sense? So John's helpful. Don't only have to go to John, though. It's all over the scriptures. We want to make it clear, though, that Jesus is not the Father. I mentioned last week if the, probably the most common easy heresy that most people fall into is believing that, okay, for example, the, the phrase that's really common, um, that God is three in one. There's nothing wrong with that, depending on what you mean, <laughs> right? So if you are saying our God is, God is one being, there's one being of God, and that being of God has eternally existed and revealed itself as three persons, great. If you're saying our God is three in one, and you mean the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all the exact same person and are indistinguishable, that's not correct, right? That's modalism, yeah, or uh, Sabellianism is another name for it. You'll see it in other groups, uh, Jesus only, um, a lot of oneness Pentecostals, um, so the, the, these ideas have different names, um, but it's the same idea, that the Father and the Son are indistinguishable from one another. Um, a really easy passage to go to is to look at the baptism of Jesus, right? So, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. All three persons are mentioned. All three persons are clearly distinguished, right? Jesus is not the father. When Jesus is praying, he's not talking to himself, um, right? Uh, it's a very clear distinction of persons. And despite this, Jesus makes some pretty heavy claims, right? So from John 10 that we just talked about a second ago, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I will give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. Again, 
It can be very easy to read this passage and you go, oh, Jesus is the Father. In Greek, it's literally, I and the Father, we are one. Plural, are. Um, right. That he's in union with the Father, but, but more than... He does not mean that he is the Father, right? Because, he, again, the, the distinction of persons is still there. I and the Father, right? We are one. I, I would argue he's calling back to the Shema, but he's calling back to um, Deuteronomy 6.4, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, um, right? That God is, uh, uh, Dr. Michael Brown says that God is complex in his unity, um, right? But that if we can talk about the one being of God and that that one being of God eternally exists in three persons. We're not like God, right? We want to understand this idea. We can't comprehend it, right? Try and make that distinction, right? So I can understand pregnancy. I can't comprehend it, right? <laughs> different, different things, right? Um, I can commiserate with my wife on it, but not at the same level as somebody who goes through it, right? Um, so we want to make make those distinctions. Um, Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and we, we, we try to do that. We try to, in, in an attempt to, it's a good desire, an attempt to try to understand who we're worshiping, we want to try and understand, right? And often what happens is, okay, well, let me lower this, right? Let me lower the bar. Let me lower, right? So we come up with all kinds of analogies, right? Well, God's like a three-leaf clover. No, God's not like a three-leaf clover. God's like an egg. No, not like an egg. God's like an apple. No, he's not like, God's like water. No, not like water. God's not like creation. <laughs> he's just not. Um, and so it's really important that we make the, right. So can we can we make some analogies? You can, but they will fail miserably, and more th more than likely they will actually lead somebody to heresy. So don't do that. <laughs> right? Teach what the scriptures teach. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all called divine. We are told that they are, we are told that they are uh, that there is only one God. Right? So we don't believe in three different gods. There's only one God. Those three persons are called God. Those three persons are distinguished from one another. That's the Trinity. <laughs> right? Um, Like, yeah, that's that's it. Yeah, Jesus is the one who reveals the Father to us. Yeah, and like Jesus says in John seventeen three, a favorite verse of Jehovah's Witnesses, um, uh, that Jesus says eternal life is to know you. He's he's praying to the Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Right. So Jesus is saying eternal life is to know who the Father and the Son is. If you mistake who the Son is, you don't have eternal life. And John makes this very abund abundantly clear in his epistles when he says that if cannot have the Father unless you have the Son. The Son is our means through which we receive the Father, right? Um, and ultimately, we're able to receive and have communion with him and are baptized into his body and receive his spirit so that we have communion, um, right? These are Trinitarian doctrines, right? This is why we're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That doesn't make sense unless you're Trinitarian. It doesn't work out. Um, so we'll talk, we'll talk about those, those pieces as we, as we continue through the creed. Um, but again, one of these distinctions is that Jesus says that the Father was greater than him. Right, so in John 14, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Again, very clear distinctions, right? Jesus is going to the Father, right? If he is the Father, he can't go to himself, right? Um, very clear distinctions. And also note that he says that the Father is greater than him. What does Jesus mean when he says this? Does he mean that he's a lesser God? No. What does he mean? Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter 2. 
He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So in the incarnation, we have Jesus humbling himself, Jesus making himself lower, um, literally emptying himself is what the, is what the Greek te- text says, uh, making himself of no reputation. Um, Sometimes people will look at this say, in, in, in text and say, well, he had, he had the form of God. He wasn't, he wasn't really divine by nature. Notice he takes human form, right? So anytime somebody asks that, I go, do you think Jesus was really human? Yes. Okay, well, that's what the text says, right? And he also is in the form of God. Distinct from the Father, very clearly distinct from the Father, but shares his nature just like he truly, fully shared our nature. The text, this text very clearly teaches that Jesus is fully divine and fully human. And that he humbles himself. Right. So as a result of this, this humiliation that he takes on, Jesus, Jesus gives up some of the prerogatives and rights that he has as the divine son of God. He reveals them sometimes. So, for example, on the Mount of Transfiguration, he reveals his glory. Right. Um, and Peter, James and John are, are astonished by this. And Peter says some things that are trying to figure out if he can hang out here and all this. Right. But Jesus is revealing who he really is. Right. Um, and the father confirms this by saying, this is this is my son. Listen to him. Right. But he doesn't walk around being glorious all the time. Right. He's not always revealing his glory. Jesus even humbles himself to where he, he uh, says in the Gospels that no one knows the day that the son will return. Not even him, but the father alone knows why Jesus is humbling himself. Um, sometimes we get this mixed up and go, well, if God's omniscient. Then how could Jesus possibly not know something? This is an analogy. I have the power to pick up this laptop and throw it at John right now. <laughs> right? <laughs> he has the power to duck. I have the power to do that. My having the power and ability to do that doesn't mean I'm always doing it. Sometimes we think about omnipotence as God is always doing everything that's all powerful. Well, no. Then he's constantly creating, destroying, right? It's a very weird way that we try to work that out, right? Just because I know something doesn't mean I'm constantly pulling, pulling up that information, right? Now, God's beyond our minds, so it's a limited analogy. But I think it's helpful for us to, to work out, hey, when I, when I have the ability or power to do something, that doesn't mean I'm always exerting it. In the same way, Jesus limited himself and did not use all of his divine, pro- divine prerogatives, did not use all the rights that he had, right? Rather than grasping to his equality with the Father, he emptied himself, took on the form of a servant, and became like us. Jesus says in the, yeah, Jesus makes it clear in the Gospel of John that everything that he does, he, he, he says what he hears the Father saying, and he does what he sees the Father doing. So what Jesus is actually doing in the incarnation, this is why he's baptized, um, again, right, he tells, he tells John, he goes to, to John, right, and, and to be baptized, and John goes, well, you should be baptizing me, right? And Jesus says this is to fulfill all righteousness. What Jesus is doing is he's showing us what does it look like for you to live the Christian life? What does it look like for you to rely on the Father completely? So that we can never say when we see Jesus doing something, well, that's fine for Jesus, but he was God. No. <laughs> Jesus is showing you the things that you can do, right, to the point where Jesus says, you will do greater works than these, um, Right? Because you're working in the power of God. He's showing us this is what it looks like for you to live rightly with God. Um, 
and in, and in taking on our nature, and this is the this is this is why the incarnation is so beautiful and so important, and we'll talk more about why why it's so important next week. But that Jesus is redeeming all that we are. Jesus takes on all that we are, all of our humanity, so that he can exalt it with himself, right? So that he's highly highly exalted. So that Paul, in other letters, in, in Colossians and in Ephesians, will talk about how we are in Christ, and because we're in Christ, we're seated with him in the heavenly places. That because we've united ourselves with him, that that reality is here now, right? That we're baptized into his death and resurrection right now. That resurrection life is flowing through us when we receive communion, right? Jesus says, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, um, then you have eternal life, have eternal life, and I will raise you up on the last day, right? That through the sacraments, God is actually giving us his life. To the point where Peter will write in First uh, Peter chapter 1 that we share in the divine nature through grace. Through grace we share in the divine nature. I am not a natural son of God, right? Just like John says in the opening of his gospel, right? He gave them the right to become sons of God, not born of human will nor of flesh, right? Um, so this is, this is the beauty of the incarnation, that God is ransoming and redeeming us and exalting us. He's making us like him. It's not just setting back the clock. It's not just going back to where Adam and Eve were. It's actually making it better. We're at a, we will be in, a, in the resurrection. We will be in a better state, fuller communion than what Adam and Eve had. That's why, again, Christian understanding, right? You need the New Testament to inform the Old Testament. When we look at this and we go, wow, it seems like things are going really badly. Why didn't God foresee this? He did. <laughs> he's after something more, um, right? And what is he after? He's after actually making us fully like him. Um, that Jesus, who is the image of the invisible father, takes on our image and restores the image of God in us so that we can be made like him. That's the beauty, the wonder of the incarnation. That's why Christmas is so important, the feast of the incarnation, that God became like us so that we could become like him. The good news is not just that God's okay with you being a sinner because of Jesus. The good news is that God wants to make you righteous like Jesus is, that you're actually empowered to do those things through his spirit and through the sacraments. Way bigger, way more important, way more beautiful, way more wonderful. Um, and sometimes we lose sight of that. But that's what God is doing for us through his son. Um, that Jesus humbled himself and that he humbled himself to the point where, where he, uh, he was born of a virgin, right? He takes on our flesh. Um, so Matthew talks about the birth of Jesus like this. He says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Um, quick reminder. Probably already know this, but just in case. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It wasn't Joseph and Mary Christ, right? <laughs> Christ comes from the Greek Christos, which just means anointed, right? So you could just as easily read this. The birth of Jesus, the Messiah, or the anointed one, took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is con conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Again, Matthew pulls from that same passage that we read in Isaiah 7, right? It had an immediate context, had an immediate fulfillment. That king had a son, that God was still with him, right? 
But Matthew goes back to that passage and says, this is actually fulfilled completely in Jesus, that Jesus is the one um, who was born of a virgin, um, that we could say that God is with us because of him. Um, that Jesus takes on our flesh. Jesus became everything that we are. Jesus was conceived in the, in the womb of the virgin. He descended a fallopian tube. He was really born. He was fully human, just like we are. Jesus got sweaty, right? Jesus had to go to the bathroom. <laughs> Jesus got nervous, Jesus, right? Jesus was fully and completely human. He still maintained his divine nature, right? Giving up the rights that were, that were associated with it, but he didn't, he didn't stop becoming divine. Or he didn't stop being divine. The author of Hebrews talks about that since, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace um, to help in time of need. That Jesus is this perfect mediator. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, right? That Jesus became a human being so that he, might, again, might take on all that we are, right? Only exception being he did not sin. But, but because he took on all that we are, he's able to sympathize with us, right? He's the perfect mediator, right? Again, I might go, well, that's fine for God, but God, you're perfect, right? Well, Jesus became just like me. I have no, no excuse, right? I can look to Jesus and go, okay, well, if, if Jesus was able to do this, then I should be able to do this with God's help. That's right. <laughs> he gets it. He gets it. Um, but Jesus was tempted in, in, in the same ways that we're tempted, right? Um, sometimes we misunderstand that, right? Saying that Jesus was tempted. Som sometimes we will use it like, can I tempt you to have some cake? What I'm really saying is, would you like to have some cake, right? <laughs> I'm not saying, can I tempt you, <laughs> right? Sometimes we use that phrase and we mean something, right? So just because you're tempted doesn't mean you sinned, right? So Jesus was tempted exactly like we are, but he did not sin. He did not fall into transgression. Um, that Jesus became like we are so that we could become like him, that he, our good shepherd, leads us beside still waters and gives us everything that we need. He knows the dangers that we face, and because he faced them, we too can face them. Um, so, to, so to wrap up this section, we want to fully recognize Jesus, we recognize that Jesus is fully divine by nature. He's not a second God. He's not a, he's not a lower tier God. He's not kind of God. He is fully divine. He shares in his Father's nature that he became a human being for our sake. Jesus didn't kind of become a human being. He wasn't sort of human. He didn't just look like he was human. He was fully human. Everything that makes you a human being, Jesus had. Jesus never stopped being God, and he will never stop being human. Jesus took on our humanity, and there is a human man sitting at the right hand of the Father right now. He took on our humanity, our human nature, and exalted it up. At the resurrection, we will be made like him, for we will see him as he is, John says in his, in his first epistle. Um, Jesus became all that, all that we are to redeem and restore us to his image. All that he assumed, he redeemed. This was, this was if you want to look at the earliest way that the um, church after New Testament understands the incarnation, it's this understanding. Jesus took on all that we are so that he could redeem all that we are. He wants to fully and completely redeem us and restore us. That's the good news, right? That God became like us so that we could become like him. Um, and because of that, we should never stop praising him. Again, our understanding of, of these ideas and doctrines should lead us to praise. It should lead us to want to worship God because he's worthy. Um, these things should, should uh, 
make us excited, uh, right? That God, the work that God's doing in and through us. Um, so as as we as we close, let's um, let's recite the this old hymn uh, Te Deum together. Um, Book of Common Prayer. Thank you, Lord. Probably also in the hymnal, but uh, we need one more. Let's go ahead and stand as we recite this together. You are God, we praise you. You are the Lord, we acclaim you. You are the eternal Father, all creation worships you. To all angels, all the powers of heaven, cherubim and seraphim, sing in endless praise. Holy, holy, holy Lord. God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. The glorious company of apostles praise you. The noble fellowship of prophets praise you. The white-robed army of martyrs praise you. Throughout the world, the Holy Church acclaims you. Father of majesty unbounded, your true and only Son, worthy of all worship, and the Holy Spirit, advocate and guide. You, Christ, are the King of glory the eternal Son of the Father. When you became man to set us free, you did not shun the virgin's womb. You overcame the sting of death and opened the kingdom of heaven to all believers. You are seated at God's right hand in glory. We believe that you will come and be our judge. Come then, Lord, and help your people, bought with the price of your own blood, and bring us with your saints to glory everlasting. Father, we bless you. We thank you that you gave us your son. We thank you that your son took on our nature, that he became like us in every way. We thank you that you, that you loved us enough to give us your son. That we have been united with him in baptism and his death and resurrection. That we have full union with you through him and through your spirit. praise you and we exalt you. We thank you for your goodness and your love towards us. We pray that you would help us to extend that love out to the world. We pray that you would help us to love others as Jesus loved us. And we pray these things in his holy name. Amen. Thanks, everybody.